Chapter 28 of A History of Astronomy. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Marvin Bonarescu. A History of Astronomy by Walter W. Bryant. Chapter 28 The Stars. Catalogues, Proper Motion, Parallax, Magnitude. Turning from the vast solar system to the incomparably greater stellar universe, of which it forms but a single speck, though from our point of view a by no means insignificant speck, we must first regard the stars as a whole, supplying as they do the relatively unchanging background against which the motions of the members of the solar system are thrown into prominence. The importance of accurate standard places of stars was long ago recognized, but comparatively few observatories, at any rate before the middle of the 19th century, devoted any considerable part of their energies to the production of catalogues. We have seen how Bessel's appreciation of the monumental labours of Bradley at Greenwich rendered his results available in the Fundamenta Astronomiae, and how Lacay's work in the Southern Hemisphere provided a supplementary catalogue at the same epoch of the part of the sky not visible at Greenwich. The great work of Bradley has been re-reduced by Dr. Auvers of Berlin, with improved constants and tables, and still remains a standard catalogue after the lapse of a century and a half since the epoch of the observations. Another catalogue of nearly the same epoch was that of Tobias Meyer of Göttingen, which has also been re-reduced. With various epochs about the beginning of the last century, we find three other well-known catalogues, the Piazzi catalogue from Palermo observations by the discoverer of Ceres, that of Lalande from observations given in the Histoire Celeste taken at Paris by various observers and students, and a catalogue of circumpolar stars observed by Stephen Groombridge at Blackheath. The re-reduction of Piazzi's catalogue was recently undertaken, and also the reobservation of all the stars in it at observatories in Italy and America. Lalonde's zone catalogue purports to contain nearly 50,000 stars, but as each observation was separately reduced, the real number of stars is not so great, since many of the bright stars have at least five entries, and Vega as many as 13. The British Association published the Lalonde catalogue with Epoch 1800, omitting certain zones near the North Pole, which were separately reduced by Fedorenko to the Epoch 1790. The moving spirit of the British edition was Francis Bailey, who devoted many years to the labour of making other people's observations available, beginning with those of Flamsteed, a century before Lalonde. The Paris Observatory undertook the re-observation of Lalonde stars, and the results of observations from 1837 to 1881, though only definitely devoted to that purpose in 1855, have now been published in eight volumes, appearing at intervals from 1887 to 1902. Groombridge's stars, his own epoch being 1810, were re-observed at the Radcliffe Observatory, Oxford, with epoch 1845, and again towards the end of the century in Greenwich catalogues, in connection with which the re-reduction of Groombridge's original observations has recently been completed 
and published in 1905 by the Royal Observatory. Bessel's contribution was not confined to the reduction of Bradley's observations. His own zone observations at Königsberg fill two catalogues, Epoch 1825, one dealing with stars within 15 degrees north or south of the equator, and the other with the 30 degrees of declination immediately north of the first catalogue, i.e. with declinations 15 to 45 degrees north of the equator. Argelander of Obu, afterwards of Bonn, continued the zone observations from Bessel's northern limit to 10 degrees from the North Pole, epoch 1842, and from his southern limit to about 30 degrees south of the equator. The series of catalogues regularly published at Greenwich was commenced about this time, each embracing the stellar observations at the Royal Observatory for a period of from six to ten years, the twelve-year catalogue being simply a combination of two successive six-year periods, a system introduced by Airy soon after his appointment. Many other catalogues belong also to the first part of the century, including those of Rümker at Hamburg, Santini at Padua, Taylor at Madras, recently re-reduced under the direction of A.M.W. Downing, superintendent of the Nautical Almanac, Brisbane at Parramatta, Johnson at St. Helena, and others. Eighteen fifty was the epoch to which Lamont's Munich zone observations were reduced, and also that of the British Association catalogue, produced by the indefatigable Bailey, including all stars, to about the sixth magnitude, of which reliable observations had been published, and thus forming an invaluable work of reference. R. C. Carrington of Redhill applied himself to the observation of the polar cap north of Argelander's zone, and by his catalogue of stars from the pole to 81 degrees north declination, epoch 1855, in addition to his valuable sunspot observations, earned scientific recognition not often accorded to the later years of a man retiring from a commercial career. But 1855 is most celebrated as the epoch of the Bonn-Durchmusterung, carried out under Argelander and his successor Schoenfeld. It comprises in several volumes a complete survey, down to a magnitude about nine and a half, of the sky from the North Pole to two degrees south of the equator, and to an even fainter limit for the next twenty degrees south, included in Schoenfeld's continuation. The places, though not of great refinement, are very approximate, and letters are suffixed to stars identified as having been found in certain standard catalogues. This great survey, once known as AZ, Argelander's zones, but properly referred to as BD, though still often quoted as DM, despite the fact that it is no longer the only Durchmusterung, was supplemented by Schoenfeld with a series of large sectional maps showing, with meridians of right ascension and parallels of declination, every star in the BD. No previous star atlas could compare with these Bonn maps for such purposes as the identification of a field in which a comet had been observed, often far from the region covered by the ecliptic charts of Chacornac, Bremica and others. They contain about 324,000 stars, exclusive of Schoenfeld's continuation, or 450,000 in all. In 1865, the Astronomische Gesellschaft, or German Astronomical Society, suggested obtaining fundamental observations of all but the faintest stars in Argelander's zones. 
dividing the sky into suitable portions, zones of declination, corresponding to the position and equipment of thirteen cooperating observatories. The epoch of the various resulting catalogues was fixed for 1875, but the work took a very long time to complete, and the results for the different zones are not of quite the same accuracy. The observatories, such as Helsingfors, Christiania, Leiden, Lund, Dorpat and Washington, having, for obvious reasons, different atmospheric conditions, besides different instruments and observers. The next step was in the direction of standardizing the survey, but leading up to it was the work in the southern hemisphere. The chief catalogues produced there at the time, having been B. A. Gould's Argentine General Catalogue from Cordoba Observations, published in 1886, and Stone's Cape Catalogue for the epoch 1880. Stone's successor, Sir David Gill, who only recently retired from his post at the Cape, was struck with the clearness of the images of stars on photographs of the Great Comet of 1882, and, being anxious to extend Schoenfeld's zones to the South Pole, determined to employ photography for the purpose. The result was the Cape photographic Durchmusterung, the photographic plates being taken in four years and reduced to the form of a catalogue in about fourteen years by the labours principally of J. C. Kaptein of Groningen. But not long after the commencement of the Cape survey, Gill suggested the extension of the principle to the whole sky under international auspices, and as the brothers Henri at Paris had recently successfully employed photography in the extension of the ecliptic charts so necessary for the identification of minor planets, the proposal was welcomed in France, and an international conference held at Paris in 1887, at which it was decided to construct a chart and catalogue of the whole of the sky, the catalogue to include stars down to the 11th magnitude, the charts to the 14th magnitude, each two degrees square, all to be taken with similar instruments and similar exposures, and the sky for this purpose to be divided into zones of declination, distributed among the cooperating observatories. The instrument of the brothers Henri was taken as the standard, of an aperture of 13 inches, with a guiding telescope of 10 or 11 inches aperture. The distribution of zones was made with regard to the resources of the several observatories, and arrangements made to obtain fundamental observations of sufficient stars to secure the accurate reduction of the photographic observations. Thus, to Greenwich Observatory was allotted the zone from the North Pole to a distance of 26 degrees from it, the authorities undertaking the actual taking of the plates, more than a thousand in number, the accurate measurement of them, the production of copies, the publication of measures, and also the construction of a fundamental catalogue containing places of all the stars in the zone necessary for the determination of the plate constants. This catalogue forms the greater portion of the forthcoming nine-year catalogue, the result of a large number of observations made in the years 1897 to 1905. This is only one instance, different arrangements being made at different stations. For instance, in the case of the Oxford zone, the photographs were taken and measured at the University Observatory Oxford, while the fundamental places were determined at the Cambridge Observatory, and the same zone is now being reobserved at Greenwich. Again, one measuring bureau deals with plates from both Sydney and Melbourne observatories, and successive conferences have had to deal with changes in the original plan caused by delay in those southern zones, rather rashly undertaken by observatories whose zeal outran their financial discretion.
but the work is well advanced, most of the photographs are taken, and some of the volumes of results published. There is no room here for further reference to the various devices for measuring the plates and determining star places from them, but it seems quite likely, from a comparison made between plates taken at different observatories, that, owing to the slightly different adjustment of the various object glasses, the resulting survey may not be quite homogeneous. One of the many valuable contributions of the Harvard College Observatory and its able director, Professor E. C. Pickering, is a continuous systematic survey to the sixth magnitude, carried on almost automatically by means of a photographic telescope which exposes plate after plate to successive portions of the sky in series after series, the plates once developed being indexed and stowed away. Any question of an unfamiliar object, such as a new star, is at once referred to Harvard, where a series of plates of the region concerned, taken at different times for a long period, gives evidence of exactly the kind required. In the case of Nova Aurigae, for instance, Several plates were found to have registered its image six weeks before its discovery. The Harvard College Observatory, with its southern outpost at Arequipa in Peru, is certainly an institution that astronomers could ill spare. Neither can they fail to appreciate the spirit in which its director, having had placed at his disposal for use in the most effective manner the projected Bruce 24-inch telescope, a great advance on anything of the kind at Harvard, resisted the temptation to have it installed there, and set it up in the purer air of Arequipa, where it could be applied to the comparatively neglected field of the southern sky. Since the middle of the century, catalogues of the old kind have been fairly numerous. Melbourne and the Cape, Greenwich, Armagh, the Radcliffe, Glasgow, and other observatories, contributing British catalogues and American and continental institutions, also performing their share. But the growing importance of the photographic method has emphasized the necessity of a different sort of fundamental catalogue, on the lines of that of the British Association. Newcomb's Fundamental Catalogue of Standard Stars, published in 1899, is of this kind, embodying weighted mean results from all standard catalogues from Bradley's time, reduced to a common epoch by the employment of revised constants. Professor Auvers has projected a similar work for the Epoch 1910, which, though completed, is at present almost inaccessible, while in 1903 Professor Louis Boss of Albany published another, in which he rejected the older observations of Bradley, Meyer, Piazzi and Groombridge, as being of insufficient accuracy for his purpose. The new century saw a new project started in Germany, to collect into one great catalogue the results of all known catalogues, some 300 in number, and as many observations as could be found not included in any catalogue, such as, for instance, those of Dr. Hornsby, an old Radcliffe observer at the end of the 18th century, and some of his successors, whose observations have never been published. This monumental work is being carried out under Dr. F. Ristenpart, and should prove of enormous value. The reobservation of catalogues is of extreme importance, especially after a long interval, and it not only enables corrections to be made to adopted values of precession, nutation, etc., but furnishes materials for the determination of apparent proper motion. 
from which can be found the motion of the solar system in space, and ultimately the actual proper motions of the stars. The distance between the several epochs being a factor entering directly into the question, it is obvious that in general the oldest reliable observations must be used for the purpose, and so for many years recurrence was had to Bradley's observations, as the first point of measurement, but of late years the increasing accuracy of observed places tends to discount the necessity of a long interval between the epochs, and to enlarge the scope of the investigation to include fainter stars not observed until long after Bradley's time. Much valuable work of this kind was done by Alvers in connection with his re-reduction of Bradley's observations, and also by Porter of Cincinnati and Louis Boss. The first star, found to have a really large proper motion, was 61 Cygni, noted by Piazzi in 1792 as having an annual displacement large enough to carry it across a space equal to the moon's diameter in less than four centuries. The next runaway, Groombridge 1830, first noted by Argelander in 1842, long held pride of place, requiring less than three centuries to cover the same space, but a much fainter star was discovered in 1897 by Captain and Innis from the plates of the Cape Photographic Durchmusterung to be moving at a pace that would do the distance in rather more than two centuries, and this star, under the appellation of Cordoba Zones V243, is now the recognized champion sprinter, from the point of view of apparent motion. But it must be borne in mind that to deduce real from apparent motion, two more things are necessary in addition to the observed displacement. One, the distance, is the objective of the hunt for stellar parallax. The other, the direction of motion, is perhaps not so obviously necessary, but it stands to reason that a star moving directly towards the solar system would show no cumulative displacement whatever in a century, however fast it moved, so that small proper motion is no actual criterion of small velocity. We have seen, however, that by means of the spectroscope, the velocity in the line of sight can be measured by the displacement of spectral lines, and by composition of the observed displacement at right angles to the line of sight, and the velocity indicated by the spectroscope in the line of sight, it is possible, if the distance be also known, to determine all the circumstances of the actual motion. It must suffice here to note that, so far as at present determined, the real velocities of the stars are in a very different order, Arcturus having an observed velocity of more than 250 miles per second, Groombridge 1830 being 100 miles per second slower, and the champion sprinter having less than a third of the velocity of Arcturus. These three, numbered 1, 3 and 6 in order of tangential velocity, being respectively 21st, 2nd and 1st in order of proper motion. The historic problem of stellar parallax is an application of the ordinary question in surveying, to determine the distance of an inaccessible object, with very strict limitations on the choice of a baseline and exceedingly small differences of angle to be measured, necessitating very great care and accuracy. The displacement of an object five miles away, viewed alternately with the right and left eye without moving the head, is greater than the parallax of any star, we have seen how many advances in astronomy are owed to the persistent search in this direction, from Bradley's discovery of aberration and mutation 
to Herschel's double stars, and how the genius of Fraunhofer at length provided optical means sufficient to enable Bessel to attack the problem with success. Since then, the number of accepted parallax determinations has steadily increased. Gill and Elkin, with the Cape heliometer, have shown the refinement possible in the way of precautions to avoid systematic error, and Gill's determination of the parallax of Alpha Centauri as three quarters of a second of arc establishes the celebrated star as the nearest neighbor yet known to the solar system. The latest production in this field is a determination under Elkin's direction at Yale of 163 separate parallaxes, but the photographic method introduced by Professor Pritchard at Oxford, has obvious advantages and is gradually being adopted at Cambridge Observatory and elsewhere, though most of the well-determined large parallaxes are due to the heliometer in the hands of Gill, Elkin, Bruno Peter and others. There is also a spectroscopic method by which the distance, in the case of binaries, can be inferred from the actual velocity from line-of-sight observations and the orbital motion, or apparent angular velocity, allowing for the inclination of the orbital plane. A few years ago, while working on the reduction of the Cape photographic durchmusterung, Professor Kaptein suggested a wholesale method of parallax hunting in connection with the durchmusterung to be undertaken expressly for the purpose. A plate was to be exposed to each field in the sky, at three successive maxima of parallactic displacement, and not developed until after the third exposure, the interval between each exposure being naturally six months. Thus the first and last exposures would betray any cumulative effect such as proper motion, leaving the parallax to be determined directly by comparison of the second set of images with the mean of the other two. There are, however, considerable difficulties in carrying out this ingenious scheme, which has nevertheless been actually tried on a few plates. Changes in the film, however carefully kept, cannot be guaranteed not to take place. Moreover, it was found that the exact carrying out of the scheme involved in general exposures alternately east and west of the meridian, causing effects undistinguishable from those of a real parallax, so that to avoid these, it was necessary to expose plates only on the meridian, and so to sacrifice the times of maximum displacement. There is no doubt, however, that some such plan is of great excellence in picking out stars whose parallax is large, so as to make a list of objects worth studying for the purpose. It was for a long time assumed, as a working hypothesis, that bright stars were nearer than faint ones, although this involved the tacit assumption of a most improbable actual equality in the stars. But parallax work on this line is disappointing, a far better criterion being apparent velocity. A faint star with a large proper motion is far more likely to show a measurable parallax than a much brighter star which does not show proper motion. The seven apparently brightest stars in the heavens are Sirius, Canopus, Alpha Centauri, Vega, Capella, Arcturus, and Rigel, but of these, Sirius shows only half the parallax of Alpha Centauri, Vega and Capella barely a tenth, Arcturus only a thirtieth of the same amount, while Canopus and Rigel show none whatever. On the other hand, more than one star of the seventh magnitude or fainter shows nearly as great a parallax as Sirius, 
An obvious deduction is that so far from being even approximately equal, the stars cover an enormously wide range. Canopus must be at least 70 times as far away as Alpha Centauri, whose light reaches us in 52 months. It is inferred that Canopus gives more than 20,000 times the light of the Sun, while a star of 8.5 magnitude, also in the southern sky, turns out to be some 300 times less bright than the Sun, giving between these two stars a light ratio of 6 million. Still, the connection between brightness and distance is not entirely fallacious. It has been determined, by observations with the heliometers of Yale and the Cape, that the average parallax of stars of the first magnitude is one-tenth of a second of arc, corresponding to a distance of 33 light-years. Similarly, the average distance of second-magnitude stars works out at 52 light-years, of third magnitude at 82 light-years, and so on, the ratio between the successive distances being about the same as it would be if all the stars had the same actual brightness, for the ratio of the brightness of one magnitude to the next is 2.512, whose logarithm is 0.4, so that the distance ratio would be the square root of this, 1.585, practically the same as the ratio of 33 to 52, or 52 to 82. It seems, however, from further investigations, that the average ratios are not the same in different parts of the sky, for instance in the Milky Way and far away from it, and also that they differ for stars of different types. The actual light received from all the stars is about 1% of the light of the full moon, and it has been proved that owing to the steadily increasing number of stars as we go lower in the scale of brightness, each successive class gives more light than the one before it. This has never been controverted, although it involves the apparent paradox that nearly all the light of the sky comes from the parts where no stars are visible to the naked eye. The difficulty is, of course, the confusion of the senses between quantity and intensity. A million candles arranged uniformly in different directions at the same distance from an observer would be all separately invisible at a distance at which one light of a thousand candle power would be conspicuous, though actually giving only one thousandth part of the light of the million candles. The increase of total light from each successive drop in the magnitude of the stars considered must have a limit, since otherwise there is a reductio ad absurdum, for the sum of an infinite series of increasing quantities must be infinite, and we might expect the whole sky to blaze with an overpowering brilliance against which the sun would be inconspicuous if not dark. There does seem to be a change in the ratio of increasing frequency of stars somewhere below the ninth or tenth magnitude, Newcomb says at least the eleventh, but it varies in different parts of the sky. If space were filled with equal bodies evenly distributed, the number of stars visible in any direction down to a particular magnitude would be about four times the number down to the next higher magnitude, but there is no known area where the ratio is so great as this. These considerations belong rather to stellar distribution than to photometry, but before fixing our attention on advances in that direction, it will be as well to emphasize some of the difficulties attending the approved numerical results of stellar analysis.
The motion of the solar system in space has been already referred to as regards direction, and various determinations of the velocity, ranging from 14.5 to 10 miles a second, have ultimately yielded to a spectroscopic result of 12.5 miles per second. The spectroscopic inquiry into the actual direction will not be complete until the result of the D.O. Mills expedition to Santiago, Chile, to extend the investigation to southern stars, is published. It is, however, probable that the final result for the apex will not be very far south of Vega, in conformity with a note in a previous chapter. The accompanying map from Kobold's Bau der Fixsternsystems shows how widely various estimates have differed. The velocity computed for most stars, for which results have been obtained, averages over 20 miles per second, so that our sun is comparatively slow, but it has been computed that the whole universe cannot by gravitation control a velocity exceeding 25 miles per second, so that many stars headed by Arcturus with a velocity ten times as great present anomalies whose explanation has hardly been attempted. Newcomb's figures, however, are not really based on the whole universe, which is an unknown quantity, but on the effect of a hundred million suns, each of five times the mass of our own, distributed over a disk-like space of 30,000 light-years in extent. A spherical space of about one-fifth of this diameter, strewn with double the quantity of gravitating matter in the form of suns, would suffice, in Lord Kelvin's view, to produce velocities ordinarily met with among the stars. These estimates do not differ greatly from the hypothetical numbers suggested by a comparison of photographs for the total of the stars, a hundred million having been actually mentioned as a fair estimate of the probable number that would be revealed by the greatest modern telescopes. The high velocities of Arcturus and other stars would seem to suggest a much greater quantity of unsuspected matter in the universe, possibly non-luminous or only faintly shining. Stellar photometry, however, though as we have seen the magnitude of a star is no actual criterion of its distance or size, is a branch of growing importance. After the time of Al-Sufi's catalogue, many ages lapsed before a catalogue appeared in which photometry was the chief feature. B. A. Gould's Uranometria Argentina, giving the magnitudes of over 8,000 stars visible at Cordoba, was published in 1879. A few years later appeared Pickering's Harvard photometry of more than 4,000 stars from observations with the Meridian Polarizing Photometer, and Pritchard's Uranometria Nova Oxoniensis, of nearly 3,000 stars visible to the naked eye, from the North Pole to 10 degrees south of the equator, observed with the wedge photometer at the Oxford University Observatory. Both methods ultimately depend on the faculty of the human eye for detecting equality of light, the amount of rotation of the polarizer in the one case and the thickness of the absorbing wedge in the other, to bring about the required diminution of the bright object being the actual observation. The Harvard photometry has been extended southwards to the other pole by Professor Bailey's observations of nearly 8,000 southern stars at Arequipa, the southern outpost of Harvard College Observatory. Professor Pickering's more recent photometric Durchmusterung from nearly half a million observations at Harvard 
comprises photometric determinations of all stars down to the seven and a half magnitude between the North Pole and 40 degrees south declination. Small sources of uncertainty must always remain in visual estimates by various observers, and for the purposes of the astrographic chart, some method of photographic photometry was required. From among the uncertainties of definition and of plates, some general formulae have been extracted, giving a connection between the size of the image for a definite exposure and the photographic magnitude of the star, which, owing to the greater chemical action of the blue or violet rays, does not always agree with the visual magnitude. But the formulae are very irregular and inconsistent. Pickering's device of photographing two images of the same star, one direct and the other reduced by a screen, promises more consistent results. It is to be applied to a catalogue of 40,000 stars to the 10th magnitude, and a repetition of the determinations of the first Harvard photometry is promised by the new method in addition. The Draper catalogue has a spectrophotometric method, the intensity of a particular line being employed as the index for each star, but this is far from being a safe clue to either the visual or the photographic magnitude, especially for stars of varying types. Even to the eye, contrast of colors, the simplest evidence of varying type, renders photometric comparison difficult, but standardization of color has not made much progress, as the color perception varies in different individuals. The most important group of definitely colored stars is that of red stars, among which Ptolemy and others of the ancients appear to have included Sirius, which is certainly not red now. Footnote. Schiaparelli argues that the word used did not necessarily mean red, but simply bright. Footnote end. Al-Sufi, many centuries later, omitted Sirius, but included Algol, so even thus early there was evidence of color changes. Lalonde in 1805 gave a list of 33 red stars. In 1866, Schellerup published a catalogue of 280 red stars, followed in 1876 by Birmingham, with another containing 658 stars. Many of these are declared by Chambers to be rather orange than red, and it is certain that very few are of a deep red colour. In 1888, Espin published a new edition of Birmingham's catalogue, with more than double the number of stars, adding also the spectral types to which they belonged, and five years later, Krüger of Kiel brought out a catalogue of more than 2,000 coloured stars. Antares is the reddest of the bright stars, and is said to have derived its name from having been mistaken for red Mars. Anti equals instead of, Aries equals Mars. But most deep red stars are invisible to the naked eye, and a great number of them are variable and appear more orange at their brightest. There are many modern instances of changes of colour like that ascribed to Sirius, including some which have apparently gone from red to blue. Ball's cursory parallax hunting at Dunsink, though unsatisfactory, supported the inference that red stars are not specially near our system, but they do seem to congregate in certain regions and to be often associated in pairs. This tendency is not confined to red stars, but is found in many groups in the sky, the late R. A. Proctor having collected evidence 
of what he called star drift in several regions, one including five of the seven stars in the plough. But one particularly interesting phase of colour observations is associated with binary stars, the next subject that comes under our observation, postponing the general question of stellar distribution. End of chapter 28 Recording by Marvin Benarescu